Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We are in this series where we are answering a question that we asked several weeks ago, about eight weeks ago, and that is, is change possible? Is it possible for us to actually experience real change? And we talked about how all of us kind of have things that we'd love to change in our lives, and the illusion or the reality of believing that if I could just change this in my life, then somehow or another, that would get me to a better place than where I'm at. So we kind of ask that question about the church. The church often talks about change and transformation and renewal, and we just sang revival, you know, and does that really take place? And if so, how does that take place? So we went on a journey of studying the reality that Christ isn't just the author of change, he's the sustainer of change, but he's also the completer of change, meaning that if you're in Christ, if that's a reality for you, you've already experienced change. You have been transformed. Uh, matter of fact, if you've become a Christian, then the old is gone, the new has come. That's what Scripture says. The Scripture goes so dramatic as to say that if you're not in Christ, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. If you are in Christ, you're spiritually alive. That something immediately transpired when I became a believer. If that's true, then why is that often not our reality? Why is that something that often we give lip service to, but it's not something that we life experience it? Okay? So we, we've been diving into 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 and trying to unpack what this change is all about. So um, I'd love a reader. Does anybody want to read for us this morning? Anybody feeling it? You got the vibe? I don't see any hands up. It's, everybody's looking down and doing that. Don't Dave, come on up, man. Y'all know Dave? You should know Dave because he just saved all of you. Dave, introduce yourself to the microphone. I'm Dave George. Good morning. So Dave, uh, could you start reading for a second? Tim, second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Okay, stop there because what we began this journey is saying, come on, really. It just said that God is so powerful and in that power, he's given you as a believer everything you need for life and godliness. <laughs> okay, you know, really? Really? And so we said, if that's true, then why do most Christians live as if they're impoverished? Why do most Christians live as if there's no power? Why do most Christians live their lives as if they're looking for something? Watchman Nee used to put it this way, that most Christians spend their whole lives praying prayers that God has already answered. Or another way to put it, most Christians spend their life asking God to put them in a room that they're already in. In other words, we keep asking God to give us what he's already given us. Why do we as Christians live that way? Why are we blind to that? I'm, I'm not going to ask you to preach a sermon, Dave. You would. Oh, I would. So I'm, I'm going to keep my bantering to a minimum. All right, so go ahead. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So several weeks ago, we said that the way I begin to fill out what the epistles, Paul often says this in the Bible, open your eyes, come awake, can't you see with the eye of your heart? You know, that when I participate with the divine, 
I begin to see I have everything for life and godliness. So the question is, if that's what happens, how do I participate with the divine? For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Okay, stop. We said several weeks ago that the way I participate with the divine is through faith. And faith is not, you know, heaven money. It's not something I manufacture and give to Jesus. And in exchange, Jesus gives me everything for life and godliness. This isn't a trade. Matter of fact, faith is something that is given to me by God. Faith is actually a gift from God to me so that I have the capacity to receive everything. Now that I have faith, I'm participating with the divine. I get to add stuff to my faith. In other words, I'm pouring gasoline now on my faith. By my life, I'm actually setting into flame the fire that is already there. Y'all getting this? Okay, so how do I throw kerosene on that fire of faith? Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Okay, leave that up there, sir. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Awesome job. Go Tigers. <laughs> wow. Are there any Tide fans here this morning? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit it. I understand. All right. You know, the last thing that we put up there, right before this, says, when, when I start adding this kerosene to the fire of my faith, it keeps me be from becoming ineffective or unproductive. You know, it's a beautiful statement because what Peter is speaking to is my desire that my life would be effective. I mean... Wouldn't you hate to go to the end of your life and at your graveside somebody's saying, well, you know what, he wasn't really very effective and he wasn't productive at all. I mean, none of us want to have those things said about us. Actually, when we come to the gospel, we realize that what Peter and all the other writers of Scripture is talking about is love, is that we become very effective in loving and we become very productive in loving. And the folks around us get to experience the produce of that, you know? And so we come to this last part. It says, but if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind. Let me stop there because is it possible to be nearsighted and blind? I mean, because nearsighted is that I have the ability to see up close, right? Like I'm nearsighted. My glasses that I wear is because I'm not farsighted. I can't see past about three feet in my face and know that what I'm seeing is what it, what it is. But it doesn't mean that I'm blind. I can take my glasses off and it feels like blind. But this is a, this is a way that the early Greeks used to, it's a, a saying that they had that actually implies that someone has willingly, voluntarily closed their eyes. Meaning that I have the ability to see. Matter of fact, my vision is really good, but I'm going to choose to close my eyes and not see it. It's kind of like when kids are little 
and they put their blankie over their head, uh, and they don't think anybody can see them because they can't see anybody else. Or they close their eyes and they think that they're hiding because they can't see. Why would we close our eyes? And what is it that we're closing our eyes to? It says, we've forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. What Peter is saying here is that we become ineffective and unproductive in everything we've talked about for the last eight weeks when we willingly close our eyes to the reality that we have been forgiven from all our sins. Why would we do that? I mean, let's think about this for a minute, okay? So, let me get this straight. We all are born under the curse of sin. That sin, when it came into the world in Genesis 1 and 3, that it put a curse on mankind. And with that curse came death. And that curse separated us from God. So that all of us that were born under the curse, sin for us is our natural language. That we're not just those born under sin, we are also those who sin. Actually, we sin so good that many of us are comfortable with the word sinner because we're great at it. Matter of fact, we're professionals at it. I have the ability to mess up everything in my life. Matter of fact, I can promise you that if you're in a relationship with me and you get to know me close enough, there will come a moment where I'll mess you up. I promise. And you know why I'm so certain of that? Because I'm absolutely certain if I make room in my life for you, you're going to mess me up. I know you are. You're a sinner. You sin. We're born under the curse of sin. So Jesus comes in and says, there's no way that mankind, any of mankind, can ever find God because we are under the cloud of the curse of sin. And so what does Jesus do? He comes in and he says, man can't pay for his own crimes against God, so I'll do that for them. He goes to the cross. Even though he had no sin of his own, he became all sin so that what? We could become the righteousness of God. In other words, God said, Jesus, we're going to put all of mankind's sin on you, and in return, we're going to give all your perfection to them. So that when God sees me, he's not seeing my sin anymore or the sin that I've committed. Now he's seeing the goodness and perfection of Jesus Christ. And now the Father in heaven deals with me according to the perfection of Jesus rather than the imperfection of my own actions. Really? Is that good? Here's the deal. You give me all the stuff in your life that you hate, and in exchange for that, I will give you riches beyond your wildest dreams. Come on. What's the catch? I mean, seriously, that's a deal that's too good to be true. But when we come into the gospel, we realize it's the deal that's too good not to be true. So if it is that great, If it's that great, okay, let me get this straight. I'm giving you all my mistakes, and in exchange, you're giving me everything I need for life and godliness? Wait a minute. In exchange, you're giving me a love that surpasses all understanding? Wait, let me get this straight. You're giving me a father who says, now that you're in the position of my son, I'm working all things together for your good. Everything. Everything. Okay, seriously. Why would I forget that? Why would you forget? Just writing this week, uh, I literally came up with a list of probably 30 things 
that would cause me to forget that I have been forgiven from all my sins. We don't have time to do all those. So I selectively, because I'm the one speaking and not you, uh, chose one, all right? And I just want to walk us through it because here's what we're about to do. Uh, Starting next Sunday, we're going to go on a mini-series on money, and we're going to ask ourselves this question, how does somebody who's been transformed actually use money? How do we view money? How do we live in that? As an example of understanding transformed living. But we have to understand that there are things that are going to get in the way that are going to cause us to stumble. Peter realized that. He realized there are going to be things in your life that are going to cause you to close your eyes to the amazing gifts of God. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 26. This is the uh, story that maybe you're familiar with. Uh, Peter, the night before Christ was betrayed and went to the cross, uh, he was with his disciples. And he actually uh, was telling the disciples that his life has come to an end, that his ministry on earth was over and he was about to go to the cross and he was going to die. And so in verse 31... Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus is saying to them, hey guys, let me tell you what's about to happen, all right? I'm about to be struck down and all of you are going to abandon me. But he says, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter, our Peter who wrote the things that we've been studying, looked at Jesus and said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. (laughs) Now we're beginning to see this guy named Peter who is pretty full of himself. I mean, he's kind of bold. He sticks his foot in his mouth a lot. He's kind of arrogant. He has a high view of himself. And now he's looking at Jesus and saying, let me tell you something, all right? All these goobers you call disciples, yeah, they're all going to fall away. I can see where you're coming from on that. But as for me, ain't going to happen because I am with you to the end. What's this? Jesus then looks at Peter and says, I'll tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You think you're so awesome. Guess what? Three times before tomorrow morning. Then Peter declares, I love that. He is declarative. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Yeah, what he said. You hear Peter do it. He's like, no way. No way. There is no way. Jesus, you're a liar. That's what he's saying, isn't it? What's amazing about what we're hearing about Peter is amazing what I hear about me. And that is that I have the capacity in moments of great revelation to make commitments to those revelations that sabotage my journey. In other words, I have the ability to subtly, when I make commitments to God, When I say, I will never, I will always, no, not me, yes, me, I will climb the mountain, I will swim the ocean, I'll do all these things, I subtly now take my eyes off the amazing work that Jesus has done for me, 
and all the things that he has given me for life and godliness and participating with the divine, I take my eyes off of that, and guess what I put my eyes on? I love this. Me. That's a mirror if you can't see. It is a beautiful mirror. Not a beautiful mirror? Beautiful mirror. Not a beautiful We do that. And you know what's, what's awesome is that we love making commitments. Matter of fact, we love making commitments so much, we, we worship people that make commitments. You know, we hear stories about people that, like, if you heard about the guy that run, ran 50 marathons in 50 days? 50 consecutive marathons in 50 days. And we listen to that and we go, oh, that is unbelievable. Because we think what great commitment it takes to run 50 marathons in 50 days. And then it makes us think, wow, that's superhuman. He's doing something none of us could, whoa. And we're in awe of this commitment. Or we hear about the people that climbed Mount Everest naked. Oh, yeah. There aren't any. I'm joking, all right? But we think about that kind of stuff, and we, you know, and, and then we begin to start believing that what Jesus really wants is he wants super people. He wants people that are going to look at him and say, man, we, we are going to fill in the blank. I mean, we love that kind of stuff, if you don't believe me. I was listening to the radio the other day, and this song came on, and I just started laughing because it's just perfect. This is uh, Bruno Mars. Have you heard the song Grenade? You've not heard the song Grenade? Actually, guy can sing, man. But it's a love song to a girl that doesn't love him anymore, and he's telling her, to give me all your love is all I ever asked. That's it. That's all I want, just all your love. And he says, because what you don't understand is I'd catch a grenade for you. <laughs> I would throw my hand into a blade for you. Love that. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do all that for you. See, I would go through all this pain. Hey, if that's not enough, listen to this. I would take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby, but you won't do the same, all right? Do you not see the level of my commitment? Do you not see how important I am? Do you not see how valuable I am? I will jump in front of a train for you, but now because you won't commit to me, I'm going to push you in front of a train. <laughs> Sounds like they've been married for a couple of years. See, what subtly happens when I start believing, oh, isn't that just so beautiful that this commitment is unparalleled by anybody else, that Peter is looking at Jesus, and it sounds so good, doesn't it? When Jesus is saying, oh, all you guys will turn your backs on me. And, and Peter's over here going, not me, not me, not me. And then all the other disciples are going, yeah, that smells good. Not us either, not us either. And now what becomes the focus is not Jesus and his commitment to me, what becomes the focus is me and my commitment to me. See, here's what subtly begins to happen when I start making commitments. And my focus of my religion is about my commitment to God. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to fail. 
you're going to fail. Matter of fact, if you've never had this moment, then you don't know yourself very well. And it's that moment where you look in front of the mirror and you go, oh, dear Lord, what have I done? Have you ever had the moment where you've shocked yourself and said, I can't believe that I did that? Have you ever had one of those moments to where you've blown it so big that it even shocked you and you know you? When we have those moments, guess what begins to happen when the, when the mask is pulled off of my high commitments? When I'm now starting to see in reality that I'm not what I thought I was, I start to say things like this. I don't deserve to be forgiven. No, 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 no. You don't understand what I've done. I don't deserve God's love. See, I don't even have a right to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you've experienced this. You didn't just make a commitment to God. You made a recommitment to God. God, will you please forgive me this time? And here's what I promise, God, standing in front of the mirror. Here's what I promise. Here's my commitment to you. I will never do that again. And guess what happens? I do it again. And now shame is heaped upon guilt because it's not that I believe that I've done something wrong. Now my guilt, with my commitment together, has twisted me and has convinced me now that I've not just done something wrong, I am something wrong. And if I am something wrong, how do I get forgiven for that? How do I get forgiven for me? And what happens when that becomes my commitment along with my own broken guilt and shame now changes how I see myself. It's really easy. If I don't like me, what do I believe God thinks about me? You know the answer. You know, you know how impossible it is for you to love somebody when you don't believe that you're lovable? Let me give you a little tip here. And this is true about most of our relationships. Whatever you give yourself in the quietness of your own heart, that's what you're going to give other people. If you can let yourself be loved, if you can let yourself be forgiven, if you can let yourself be, be elevated to the place of who God has made you to be, guess what you're going to give other people? But if all you give yourself is self-hatred, destruction, guilt, and shame, I don't care how nice you are at the beginning of a relationship, eventually that's what you're going to give the other person because that's what you have to give. When I'm living in this place here to where my commitment and fulfilling that be commitment became my identity for Christianity and I fail, then it's difficult for me to believe that God loves me because I'm such a hypocrite. Yes, you are. I'm such a liar. Well, of course you are. I'm such a thief. Well, absolutely. I have the capacity to commit any sin given the right situation. Well, yes, of course you do. The angels are yawning. God knew that about you before Jesus ever went to the cross. See, what's amazing about this forgiveness is that Jesus didn't just forgive us for the sins that we, you've committed up to this point. Guess what? When he went to the cross, all your sins were future tense. Do you get that? That means every sin that you're going to commit from now until the end of your death, future tense. 
Jesus didn't just die for what you've done or what you're currently doing right now. He also died for what you're going to do. Oh, but we have an enemy. Let me tell you about this enemy. Uh, I have everything for life and godliness. How much of this can he take away? Not a bit. Okay? I get to participate with the divine because of what Jesus did for me. How much of this can he change? Not a bit. What can he destroy in this? Nothing. So what does he do? This is what he loves to do. If he can convince you that this isn't true, then you will live your life as if it is not true. In other words, the person who has everything but believes they have nothing is no different than the person who has nothing. They both live their lives the same way. Did you get that? So he comes in, and what does he do? This is, he's the accuser. He's the deceiver. And this is the kind of stuff he says. Did you see what you just did? And you call yourself a Christian? Do you see what you're thinking? Where your eyes are going? And you call yourself a Christ follower? Really? Do you see how short you fall to your own expectations? You think God is really pleased with you? Let me beat this horse down a little bit more, all right? Because when I start to hear that, and I start to live in these commitments, thinking that's my religion, this is what my repentance becomes, okay? Repentance isn't about me coming and healing my relationship with God. Now repentance is me recognizing, man, there is space between me and God. Maybe you've heard that growing up, and uh, you've been in churches where, you know, they say you're either growing closer to God or you're growing away from God. And if you're growing away from God, guess who moved? Well, the problem with that is the Scripture says that God will never leave me nor abandon me. Wait a minute, or forsake me. It also says that Jesus is the one who's the author and the perfecter of my faith. He's the one finishing. It also tells me the Holy Spirit is the one that's constantly working in me. Wait a minute, I can't get rid of God. So if that's true, but I'm living in this idea that my sin now has separated me from God. God's over there, I'm over here. Who's moved? I've moved. Now it's my responsibility to get back to Jesus. All right? So I put on my hiking gear because I'm not going to scale Mount Everest naked. I put on my hiking gear, and here's my hiking gear. First, I make a commitment. And that commitment is, I'm going to do better. Because, really, let's be honest, anytime you hurt somebody, the first step to getting closer to them is telling them, I won't do that anymore. I promise you I'll change. Right? Isn't that what we do? (laughs) It's so broken. But, you know, so we say to them, hey, we say to God, hey, I, I know I blew it. I know I'm wrong. I, I won't do that anymore. I swear I'm going to get better. And so now we go for a whole day, and we don't, you know, do that thing or whatever. We don't cuss or we don't envy or we don't get greedy or, you know, we don't look at something on the Internet or something like that. And so we say to God, hey, hey, I'm doing pretty good, and I feel pretty good because I've gone, hey, eight hours, you know, mm-hmm, you know, haven't smoked a cigarette all day long. I'm feeling pretty good. Not really, but I'm, I'm hanging in there, all right? And then something suddenly begins to happen as I'm starting to feel better about myself. Something starts to gnaw at me. 
to where it's starting to get a little harder now not to do the very thing that I swore to God I was never going to do anymore. And so I struggle now. Okay. <laughs> All right, God, man, we're scaling this mountain. You know, I could use some more clothes. And, you know, it's getting a little hard. I'd, I'd rather be back in sin land, you know. And so it gets a little hard. And it gets a little harder. And then something horrible happens. I fail. And in my failure, I go all the way back to this place, to the worst place, because it's worse now than it was before, because I've let myself down, I've let God down. What hope is there for me? I'm disappointed in me, therefore God's disappointed in me. Hmm. When I step in front of the mirror, like Peter did when he said to Jesus, there's no way. I will ever betray you. When Peter heard that rooster crow, um, he wept bitterly. And when he wept bitterly, uh, the next day and for the next couple of days, he kind of disappeared. He crawled into a hole. I don't know if you've ever been there, where you've come face to face with your own mortality, your own limitness, your own powerlessness, and you think that life is coming to an end because you realize that you don't have the power to accomplish or achieve the things that you really want. Then Peter did what every good guy does when he comes out of that hall. He goes fishing. So he gets with all his buddies and he goes back to doing the one thing that he knows how to do. I can't do anything right, but I know how to fish. And he gets up there uh, on the boat and uh, guess what's the one thing that Peter cannot do? fish. You know, at the beginning of the Gospels, we see Jesus seeing these guys out there fishing, and they're not catching anything. And he tells them, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and you'll catch some fish. And they caught a bunch. Remember that? Because they did not catch fish. Well, here they are again, and Peter is on the boat. When they see somebody on the shore that says, hey, are you catching any fish? And they kind of grunt, no. And he says, try the other side of the boat. They do, and the nets are about to bust. And John looks over at Peter, and they make odd contact. And John says this, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Think about the insanity of this. Peter is fishing. He's sweating. He's taking his coat off. He's there just in minimum clothes, working hard, now pulling all these fish. And he's thinking, I need my coat on if I'm going to jump in the water. His mind's all boggled, man. He puts on his clothes and jumps in the water because he can't wait to get to the one that he calls his master. He swims. He gets up on shore, and when he gets up there, maybe you've read the story, Jesus is cooking for him, and he looks over, and he goes, uh, hey, Peter, do you love me? Knife to the heart. Let's hear your words now, Peter. You love me? He used the word agape. He goes, do you agape me, which is that unconditional kind of love that God has for the world. Peter looks at Jesus and he goes, 
hey, you, you know aphileo you, which is the Greek word for love for friendship. So Jesus hit it with him again. Hey, Peter, you can almost imagine what's going through Peter's mind. Hey, big man, Peter, Mr. Commitment, never leave me, never abandon me. Do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter goes, hey, Jesus, you know, hey, you know I phileo you. So Jesus finally says, Peter, do you even phileo me? Like, do you even, am I even your friend? And Peter was hurt. See, what had happened was Peter had come to the end of himself. He'd stepped away from the mirror and he says, Jesus, don't ask me to stand in front of the mirror anymore. I don't know how to make any more commitments to you. And Jesus said, exactly. Peter, do you know that I love you? See, the reason that we forget that we're forgiven is because we're enamored by our own commitments. And when we do that, we fail to understand the commitment that God has for us. Matter of fact, Scripture says that while we were yet enemies of God, Christ went to the cross and died for us. We were enemies of God, and he died for us. And if now we are sons and daughters, how will he not now give us all things? In other words, will you put down your own commitments? And by faith, will you come to believe that God is more committed to you than you will ever be to him? You know, there's this amazing story in Scripture about a man who was working in a field, and he found a treasure. Maybe you've read this story. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of God is like a man who's working in a field, and he finds a treasure. And he covers up the treasure, and he goes, and he takes everything he has, and he sells it so that he can have the cash in his hand to go buy the field. Because he knows if I own the field, I own the treasure. And so he goes, and he buys the field, and then he rejoices because the treasure is his. Maybe you've heard that that's the story of what we should be doing to Jesus, is that Jesus is the great treasure and we should sell everything. We should make great commitments. I want to commit to you that you go and read the stories that are around that parable because that's not what the parable is saying. The parable is saying that we're the treasure. The the parable is saying that Jesus was the man working in the field and that Jesus went and sold everything. He laid his life down joyfully for you and for me. Why? So that he could possess the greatest treasure ever. And that's what he calls you and me, is his treasure. His treasure. See, the powerful thing about forgetting that we are forgiven, we forget because we're shocked that we need to be forgiven. We're shocked that that's what love does. We're shocked that his love is that great. See, when we grasp how great God is, and we come to the end of ourselves, we do crazy stuff like jumping off of boats when we hear our Savior call. We do crazy stuff like that. And when we hear him say, hey, enough of your commitment to me. Do you hear my love for you? We simply say, yeah. Last week at the beginning of the 9 o'clock service, uh, Billy was giving the call to worship. And it was just beautiful the way he did it because he said, hey, are we here? Is this our weekly spiritual car wash where we're all kind of running through the car wash and we come out clean, you know, get a fresh clean every week? 
And he said, that's not what we're doing here. We're not getting fresh forgiveness. He says, what we're doing is we're coming together as a community of humble people that desperately need the Lord. That as we lift our voices up to sing, we are reminding one another that the gospel is true. That the God of the universe loves us so much that through the work of his son on the cross, he has given us everything. And as we participate with him, we begin to behold the wonders of our God. And we need each other so that we can return back to the sanity of who we are. Well, that's what this table is all about. You know, Scripture teaches us that at this table we do two things. We remember and we proclaim. Let me pray for us and then we'll spend some time coming to this table. Lord, we thank you that your commitments are greater than ours. We thank you, Father, that repentance is not about making new commitments, but it's about understanding the broken things that we've loved, the things that we've trusted that are not of you, putting those things down, recognizing them, putting them down and picking up your mercy. So, Lord, as we come to this table, I pray that you give us mercy as a community to put down our sin, to put down those false things that we love and pick up your grace.